Hey everybody, I'm Fridal Capistrano. I narrate audiobooks. I happily spend time reading from my home studio here in California. You are listening to my podcast where I interview the authors I have narrated for. Thanks for tuning in to Readers on Writers. Our writer today is Sarah Zar. Sarah Zar is the author of A Song Called Home. Sarah is also the acclaimed author of 11 books, a creative writing teacher and coach and host of the This Creative Life podcast. While she's often in her hometown of San Francisco and Pacifica, California, she currently lives in Salt Lake City, Utah with her husband and cat. A Song Called Home is Sarah's 10th book and first middle grade novel. Inspired by her own San Francisco childhood, it follows fifth grader Lou Emerson through some big life changes and challenges and her father's unresolved issues with addiction and instability. The New York Times called A Song Called Home deeply affecting and achingly authentic. Readers on Writers is like a small coffee table book club with our best friends. Our main goal is to learn more about each other in our respective fields, narrators and authors, and specifically regarding the book we are featuring. So take a sip from your favorite mug because it's time to welcome our special guest. Sarah Zar. Hi, Fidel Capistrano. <laughs> yes. So, how is it going? <laughs> you know, that's a loaded question in 2022. <laughs> I oh, mean, boy. like a, on the one hand, like bad, <laughs> going really bad. But on a personal, you know, my day-to-day -day life is fine and good at the moment. Uh, it's summer in Salt Lake City. It's hot, but it's also just kind of, it's very casual here year round anyway. You know, you're just out there in your bike shorts and t-shirts and cutoffs and swimsuits until yes. September. Yeah. <laughs> and we have a little pool at our condo. So, you know, we're trying to make the most of it. Oh, that's nice. Swimming is nice. How's it going for you? It's going well. I'm really happy to have you here. I've been looking forward to chatting with you since I spent several hours on your book. And I was so curious after reading it, I was like, man, I would love to get to know Sarah. <laughs> Thus, Readers on Writers was for. <laughs> I love the concept of this podcast. I think people who are book people are going to love it. Especially audiobooks are just more and more popular every year. I think people are really curious how that all works. Yeah. Uh, from kind of both sides of it. So I think it's an awesome idea for a yeah. podcast. I'm like fascinated even being within the scope of the work. Yeah. So let's talk about A Song Called Home. What a beautiful book. Oh, there it is. Thank you. In hard copy. I know. <laughs> you probably only ever saw the, like when you're actually doing the recording, do you just have it like on an iPad? I think I recorded your book with my Kindle. I had it up on a stand and that's how my setup was at the time. Now I actually just have it right in my studio. I have it on my computer and I scroll silently as I... Has that changed uh, from when you started? Because I recorded the first few of my books, the audio myself, uh, or I should say I got cast by the people who did the audiobook. And when I did that, which was like 2008 or something I had to like go to Los Angeles wow. to the listening library studio and I had the printed manuscript on like a music stand just flipping the paper was it like that when you started or did you start after everything went digital I started when things 
became digital. I started in the end of 2019. Mm. So it's been like a short run for me, but it's been, it feels like it's been a long time. You've been busy. Yeah. It's been really lucky that I've gotten one book after the other and I'm so Well, grateful. you're a great reader, which oh. is... <laughs> I mean, authors, you know, for uh, listeners or viewers of the podcast who are curious how it works, not to anticipate all your questions. I'm a podcast host too. So I'm always just used to like (laughs) being the interviewer, facilitating the conversation. Of course. Yeah. um, So my publisher sent me three samples. This is usually how my publisher does it. They send me three samples of people they've identified as being a potential good match. And um, I listen to them and rank them according to my preference. And then they make an offer to the first, you know, and go down the list like that. So um, I listened to several and they were all good. I mean, every reader who's working has skill, obviously. Um, But I just felt like you were a really great match for this story. I saw that you were like living in the Bay Area and you had lived in California for a while before that. And this is a California book. Uh, I just felt like you were going to get the whole (laughs) California thing, which is just different from how people back East sound. So that was a big plus for me. Yeah. And when Lou gets her guitar, I was just so moved by that because the guitar is such a special instrument to me. Everything about the book. Oh, really? Yeah. um, I was taking piano lessons as a little girl and my, I did not vibe with classical piano I wanted to like express myself and I begged my parents to quit my piano lessons and said like I wasn't giving up music I'm gonna I'll I'll switch to learning the guitar and my parents were like you can only get a guitar if you're valedictorian I was in grade seven whoa I know right (laughs) like no pressure whatsoever (laughs) wow I know my my that's intense. It was super intense. And I was like, <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll do it. And somehow I managed to pull it off. And the day of my graduation, my dad walked into the door with an acoustic guitar case. And I could not wait till after the ceremony and the little like after party in my grade eight graduating class. And when that ended, I rushed home and spent all night until 2.30 in the morning, learning all my major and minor chords. Mm. And I learned that's right away. Okay. So you're kind of a type A personality, maybe? Oh, just a little (laughs) bit. (laughs) Cause that's intense. Like one, it's painful to like practice that long when you're new and you don't have the calluses and stuff yet. Um, anyway, I suppose I should introduce the book at some point. (laughs) Yes, please. So now that we, yeah. So let's, um, (laughs) there's my little story of little of my guitar life, but yeah. How, what inspired you to write a song called home? Um, it was a variety of factors, some practical career stuff, uh, which I think for anyone who's a working writer, um, you know, trying to do it professionally or doing it professionally, you, uh, you don't rely on inspiration because you have to keep paying the bills, right? So you can't sit around and only write when you feel like it, if you're making a go of it professionally. So it was a time in my career to, um, come up with my next idea. (laughs) You know, I had finished one book, uh, and I was, 
thinking about what I was going to do next. I needed to get another contract, like iron in the fire, so that I could know that I was going to have money, um, you know, in the next year. And I had been um, writing young adult fiction. So I was, that's my first, like, six or seven books were young adult. And I hadn't really given that much thought to middle grade, actually. And this song called Home is middle grade, um, which just means it's like the characters are usually between age eight and 12, maybe 13 on the higher end. And that's sort of the audience as well, whereas young adult is like 13 and up. Um, but both my editor and agent were like, you know, have you ever thought about doing middle grade? Because the YA market right now is not the best for the kind of books that I write. I mean, it's good for some writers, um, you know, like dark fantasy, um, epic, you know, things that are going to be a series, um, high concept stuff, or like really intense romance type of things. Those are doing well, but I always write these kind of stories about families grounded <laughs> and just like people living daily like regular daily life there's no portals or creatures <laughs> or anything like that it's just like life as we know it um so both my editor and agent suggested you know middle grade might be a good place for you to write your kind of stories now so why don't you think about that so I thought about uh myself at age 10 or 11 and well, what was happening in my life when I was age 10 or 11 was like, my parents got divorced, my mom remarried, we moved. Um, it was a lot to be going through right at that age. So I just kind of started there with a character who is not really like me, but just her circumstances were based on my real experiences. Um, and just she's sort of on the brink of her mom getting married and her getting ready to move to her stepdad's house and, you know, just everything changing in a way, kind of for the first time. I mean, that's the thing when you're a young character, what makes part of what makes stories about young characters interesting is they're going through all these things that might be like common life experiences, but they're going through it for the first time. So it's emotional, it's heightened. Um, so I kind of started from there and also brought in an experience I had um, when I was a kid, which was my mom was a cellist. She is a cellist. Uh, she doesn't play that much anymore, but she is a cellist and plays guitar and piano. She, she went to music school, so she plays a bunch of instruments. Um, but when my parents moved to San Francisco in the 70s from Ohio, they kind of sold everything so they could afford to like make this move. And so my mom had sold her cello um, and she didn't have a cello for the first, like, I don't know, three, four, five years we were in San Francisco. And also we were like very poor slash broke. Um, we were always barely making ends meet, you know, getting grocery assistance, all that kind of stuff. Um, anyway, one day there was a knock on the apartment door and my mom went down the stairs to open the door and there was no one there, but there was a cello there. <laughs> so like someone who knew her and knew she played and knew she missed it had just like bought her a cello anonymously and left it on the porch. So 
I also started the book with it being the main character, Lou. It's her birthday or near her birthday and someone leaves a guitar on their porch. So I kind of brought those two experiences together to at least create a situation for the characters to start off the story. And then for me, shaping the plot and like how it's going to be a, an actual plot <laughs> is is a lot of what revision is about because I don't, I don't think in terms of plots, I'm always thinking more about characters. That is so fantastic. (laughs) I really love how the book starts off like right in the middle of it, like putting things into boxes and that surprise of the guitar. I, I, I remember reading it and having to stop recording being like, who could that have possibly been from? (laughs) Like it had to be from her dad, like, or maybe like, maybe Steve. <laughs> that's really- It's a secret. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's been uh, revealed in some of the reviews, but that's okay. Yeah. It, like it, I- the story doesn't depend on it being a secret. Right. But I was still so <laughs> floored. I was like, what an amazing surprise. What a twist in events. Like, was it from her mom? Like, I need to know. <laughs> and like, I have to meter that in my, my narration to like not speed read to get to the point <laughs> where I find out. That's pretty amazing. Um, would you say that was one of your favorite moments from the book or is there a particular line that I actually, my favorite scenes to write are scenes between people where they're just having like a difficult human interaction or a poignant one, um, just like writing emotional experiences. So like the plot events, including like the guitar showing up, feels more arduous for me because I just have to figure out how to do it without overplaying or underplaying it. But I just really love, um, like, I guess with a song called Home, one thing that comes to mind is a conversation between Lou and her stepdad. They're still really getting to know each other because this courtship with her mom has happened really fast, which is what happened with my mom and my stepdad. And so she's just kind of getting to know him and there's a scene they have out in the backyard and he's kind of sympathetic with her, her lack of having a father figure. And he's like, I didn't really have a dad either. Um, And they just have like this great moment where she realizes, Oh, like maybe I can trust him. And uh, maybe there's like a potential future for me where I'm not just upset all the time about my dad, (laughs) Uh, just showing those different models of what might be possible in life as you grow up. I really love the conversations your characters have within one another. The dialogues are just so, they're so real and they're so impactful. Um, And even the experience that Lou has in memory of her dad, there was one line that really struck me and I don't have it memorized verbatim, but it's how she had to make, had to keep her feelings small mm, to make mm-hmm. room for how big her dad's emotions were. Yeah. And, and that actually kind of healed me a little bit mm. from, you know, like big adult ex- emotions. And I was like, wow, like, Sarah, this is exactly <laughs> what I needed to hear as my 10 year old, 12 year old self. <laughs> I mean, that is another thing that inspired the book was my dad was an alcoholic. Um, he passed away. I think he was only like 68 or something like that. Um, and he was an acute 
alcoholic for all of my life, much like Lou's dad in the book, where just cannot keep anything together, like not a functioning alcoholic and very like dramatic and maudlin and all of that when um, he was drinking. So those emotional experiences that Lou has around living with someone like that definitely come from my experience as a kid, but even more so my adult perspective of being able to process that um, with therapy <laughs> and all of that. And just like go back and kind of, it's healing for me too to just write like, oh, like little 10 year old Sarah, she's going to be okay, but it's hard, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I I'm curious if you, um, when you started doing audiobooks, did you start right away with, because I just noticed you have a lot of middle grade credits. Yeah. Did you intentionally go for that niche or did you kind of just find yourself getting cast there? Um, well, when I first started, I found out that erotica and romance were the highest grossing genre of audiobooks. And I went, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so the first books I have done were eroticas and French language. Books. Oh. Yeah. And I think just because of the sound of my voice, young adult and middle grade were just how, just what fit. Mm -hmm. And luckily they're actually like my favorite genre to read. There's something that I just like love reading them. Sometimes like when the content is just too mature, I, I, I find it too boring. <laughs> like there's no, there's no dreaming. There's no like coming of age. Mm -hmm. So it, it did just find me. It wasn't intentional, but yeah. Um, yeah. I, and I much prefer this genre of books because I find that they're much better written. No offense to romance and erotica, but well, those are those are like yeah, like genres that have to follow certain tropes because yeah. that's what readers expect from mm -hmm. it. Um, what's also nice about middle grade books, I imagine, although I know a lot of romances can be pretty short, but just the the shortness that you can wrap your mind around, you can kind of hold those whole story in your head. I would think versus a big epic like 600 page adult novel where there's yeah. like all these voices you have to remember and you know the yeah. plot things that matter for how you read them and all of that exactly and it's and I always try to differentiate all the voices of the characters I read so when I'm having to do like an erotica voice it's just me and me <laughs> like oh my <laughs> oh that second one I know is popular <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And I'll come and out me. of the, and me. <laughs> and I'll come out of the booth like kind of sweaty and like <laughs> uncomfortable. <laughs> and exactly. Like, oh goodness. <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> and when it comes to certain um young adult books, I find that the themes can be like even middle grade, I, I'm, I'm actually learning now that there is a, a, a difference between the two because I always thought it was under mm -hmm. the umbrella of young adult. But um there's always these moments in every single one where I have to pause my recording and like not cry <laughs> because they get so beautiful and so emotional and I'm finding that authors are kind of encapsulating these things I feel like we I never heard as a child or the things that I never read in the books mm -hmm. growing up so I think that's that's it's really a curious thing like 
it, I can't, is it intentional? You're like, oh, I shouldn't include this theme in my book or is it just? <laughs> I think people who get into writing for young readers, a lot of people come at it um, because they do love kids and they want to help kids. That's not my particular motivation. Um, I don't have kids. Kids are fine. Um, <laughs> um, but I'm writing for me really and maybe for the kid I was. And when I was a kid, I just remember loving any book that felt like it was real. I just wanted it to feel like a real life like I experienced. And kids are experiencing a lot of complicated stuff. So in modern publishing, um, I think there's an understanding that even young readers, there's a lot they can handle. And if they can't handle it, they won't read it. And a lot of them are living you know, I was a 10 year old with an alcoholic in the house. Surely there's 10 year olds today that have alcoholics in the house. Um, you know, whatever the issue is, I mean, just open a newspaper. This is the lives that kids are living. It's the context they're in. Um, so I think writers for young readers and their editors just, just know how to put those themes in stories at the right level where it's like not too much. Um, and there's still like an overall feeling of safety. Um, when I first made this switch from young adult and writing a couple of middle grades, uh, one of the more helpful pieces of advice I heard was that for middle grade, like young adult is kind of, that's a real almost like a, not a final coming of age. Cause I mean, you do a lot of coming of age in your twenties still also and throughout life, but it's a major break, you know, in adolescence because you're, you can be so independent. Um, but in middle grade, it's like creating a world where a character can explore some of the hard things that they're starting to notice about people and the world but in a like cozier, ultimately safe context, where in YA we kind of take that cozy, <laughs> safe aspect out more. Um, but I think there's a way we try and ho hold young characters in a way where they're gonna come out okay, you know, um, because that's something readers need too. Yeah, I'm realizing now that it's it makes a lot of sense that as authors were sort of, well, as I'm guessing like if I were writing to the capacity you were, it would be, it makes sense to be healing collectively. And that's sort of what comes out from your experiences and looking retrospectively at what you maybe wish you had or wish yeah. circumstances you um, would love to heal from or see mm -hmm. from a different perspective. Um, you did mention earlier how she has, uh, Lou has a conversation with Steve and um, now Lou can sort of envision what her life can be like without having her her father be a burden to, mm -hmm. I guess, her, her entire being. Um, one of my questions was if you imagine your characters ever in the future as if you know, they're, 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 the book extended into the rest of their life, where would you imagine blue first of all I do actually by the time I'm done 
with a book where I've done many drafts and gone through an editorial process and all of that, they really are, the characters really are real to me. Like, I feel like I could run into them on the street. Um, so they do live on for me. This was and one reason my books don't have endings that are necessarily endings. And some readers don't like that. You know, I've gotten some feedback, like I wish not this book, but in my young adult, you know, people wanted things wrapped up a little more, but to me, like it never, <laughs> they just live on and on. So there's nothing ever really ends. Um, but with Lou, it's funny right now, I'm actually writing a follow-up book. It's not a sequel. Um, it's about another character in her world and it's two years later. So I kind of know where she is two years later. Um, she's thriving in seventh grade. Um, and I don't know where she'll go after that, but I think she's, she's going to be just fine. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love how you can imagine running into them in the street. That's just like how alive the story is. And yeah, they don't, they don't, um, they don't ever leave you. I don't think. Yeah. Um, when you've spent that much time creating them. <laughs> yeah. So you started writing this, um, did you say March, 2020? Um, mm, good question. That sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> I know I was doing a big revision in the, in summer of 2020. So I would say I probably started like the first little drafts in fall 2019, where I was first wrote the proposal to sell it to my publisher. Yes, I remember that because I remember my contract wasn't executed yet and the pandemic started and everything, everyone was like going home and things were shutting down. And I was terrified that my contract was going to get canceled. And I really needed that money. Like that was going to be the money I was going to live on for the next year. And I had no other money <laughs> coming. And um, I was just obsessively checking my phone and my bank account to see if the direct deposit for the advance had gone through. And like, I was like texting my agent every couple of days, like, have you heard anything about the contract? And I was just convinced that it was just going to get canceled. Like publishers were just going to be like, ah, pandemic, we don't know what's going to happen. We're just going to cancel everything. But th that did not happen. So it was, it was 2020. It was like all of the writing and rewriting happened that year. And the check came through. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've never been so relieved. I mean, I'm always relieved when I get paid. I'm sure you understand oh, yeah. that feeling, but like, I was very, very relieved. Amazing. So how, what's the process like? Um, from concept to waiting for the check <laughs> to <laughs> becoming an audiobook. What tell us what that's like? Well, I've been doing this for uh, a while now. So, uh, my first book was published in 2007. Um, and I believe, let's see, Story of a Girl, Sweethearts, Once Was Lost, How to Save a Life, Lucy Variations, Gem and Dixie. Go back and over. This is the eighth song called Home is my eighth. So I've been through through it a few times, um, which doesn't make it any easier. Like the writing itself doesn't get easier because you're always trying to do better and um, every story requires different skills. But I sort of know myself a lot better now where when it's going badly, I don't panic. I just, especially writing a first draft is the hardest for me, I think. 
Um, when you say badly, what is that? Like, I'm just not doing anything. Like, I just don't, I'm frozen, you know? Right. And I'm just like, I don't, it's, it's not like writer's block. It's just like, I don't know what happens next in the story. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what these characters should be doing. I forget how to write a book, all of that. <laughs> <laughs> so now when that happens, I'm like pretty zen about it. I'm just like, oh, well, I'll just do something else today. <laughs> right. Um, which is different from like waiting for inspiration. Like I was saying earlier, I can't sit around and wait to be inspired, but I've learned not to just spin my wheels for days on end if I'm not, if I don't know what I'm doing. So getting the first draft out is just a big hurdle. And then ideally my preferred process is then to do a second draft on my own, like finish the first draft, set it aside for a little bit, read it, take notes, figure out what I want to change, what's going to make it better, um, and then do a second draft on my own and then send that draft to my editor. That's my ideal. But because of publishing schedules and just life, I, I'm often in a situation where I'm turning in a first draft where I don't have time to do that second draft on my own. And I hate that. <laughs> I just, I don't know. It's a, there's pros and cons to sitting on it longer or not. So a lot of that depends on the publishing schedule and the editor schedule and all of that too. So um, then it's just a matter of talking, like having a long conversation with my editor. I just had a long, like two and a half hour phone call yesterday with my editor on the next book um, about the first draft. And so it's having that conversation, rewriting it again, and then from there, it can be anywhere from like one major revision and one little one, or it could be like three big revisions and like five little ones, you know, like it just whatever the book needs to like get done. And then I really rely on my editor to tell me when it's finished, because when you're in it that long, you can just lose perspective and not know you're just like am I making it worse now <laughs> like somebody stopped me so I just rely on him to be like yeah I think you're done and it's going to go into copy editing and once it goes into copy editing then it's all about producing the book so you get a cover design ideas start flowing the interior design the proofreading the little corrections the advanced reader copy. And then usually in during that time, once it's in copy editing, if the publisher has bought audio rights, that is when they'll start talking about casting the audiobook. Um, and that's when like I'll get those samples um, and rank them and try and get the reader I want. Um, Audio rights aren't automatically sold when you get a book contract. So some writers, they might be signed with a smaller publisher that doesn't have an audio arm. So they still retain the audio rights and they're free to go sell that wherever they want or produce their own audiobook, whatever they want to do with, with their rights they're allowed to do. Um, because my publisher does have an audio arm, 
um, you know, they'll typically, that's included in the rights they're buying. And then they take care of producing the whole thing. Um, now with my first few books, I was at Little Brown Books for Young Readers. And at the time, this is when I signed with them, they were not owned by Hachette yet. They were owned by Time Warner. And they had a relationship with Random House Listening Library. So Little Brown bought audio rights, but then it was actually Random House Listening Library that was producing the audio books. And with my first book, I was all new to it. Sometimes it's good to be naive, <laughs> but I was just asking my agent, I'm like, what if I want to do the audio book? What do I do? And he was like, well, we don't usually do that, but here's what you could do. So he just mentioned to my publisher that I was interested in throwing my hat in the ring to do the audio because I, like I did, um, I know doing high school drama is not equivalent to being a professional book narrator. I'm not saying that, but um, I did always love reading aloud and I felt really connected to the characters in that first book. And I just, I wanted at least to try to get that job. So I made uh, like a CD, is back in CD days. I burned a CD of reading the first few chapters and sent it to Random House. And they were like, we love it. Great. Why don't you come do that? And while you're here, do the audio on your second book. Because this is probably like way more information than you or anyone wants to know. But All information with- <laughs> is good. <laughs> I'm remembering as I tell the story that the first book, um, they actually had not bought the audio rights and it was a first book and no one knew how it was going to do, but then it was a national book award finalist that year. So then they sold the audio rights. So by the time they sold the audio rights, that first book, my second book was out, which is why they said, why don't you also do your second book while you're here? Because I had to like fly to Los Angeles, go to the studio. This was like before everyone had home studios. Um, they had like a studio with like five different booths. So I met, you know, you'd be on the coffee break and you'd meet like four other people doing their books in their booths. Um, so I actually ended up doing those and then they called me back to do my third book. Um, so I did those three and then I did, my fourth book was dual narrators. And so they cast two voice actors to do that. And then my fifth book I did, but that was different. I was in Salt Lake. They didn't have me go anywhere, but they hired an engineer in Salt Lake City at a local studio. So I went there and me and the engineer were there, but then the director was on the phone from LA or wherever. So, I mean, do you direct your own or do you have a director? Um, I've had to direct my own. Um, Do you like that or do you wish you had a director? You know, I haven't experienced what it's like to have a director yet, but I, I just received a new title for Audible Studios where I'll be recording in studio for the first time. And for me, my process on my own is like, I'll know when I'm reading something and I'm like, I don't believe that, or I could read that better and then I'll Mm -hmm. play it back. Or like, I was distracted. And that's sort of my only, um, like, I guess, compass in knowing what my read could have been like. 
and then I'll have to go back and like play it until like I'm actually happy with it. <laughs> so sometimes it can take a little longer because I'm I'm really particular about making sure I do justice to the authenticity and sincerity of the characters or of the of the story. Um, so it could it could it could go both ways. I loved I loved having a director, and I think you will like it. Yeah, uh, it's just she's just there, and it was um, Cassandra Campbell, who's a great reader in her own right. Uh, she's there on the other side of the glass and just yeah like you said just making sure like just really gently she'd be like let's try that one more time a certain line or she could tell I had some weird <laughs> mouth <laughs> noise or whatever um, to just bring out the best in a performance without you having to personally obsess and question yourself yeah with every time and I love being directed I just like love being told what to do because that input Mm -hmm. is like your own personal challenge to be like can I do what you have asked me to do yeah yeah and that's cool and and there's a freedom in that too yeah of not being responsible for every (laughs) single piece which I just I I can't imagine how different it is now because as I under, understand it most narrators now or reader what's the preferred what's the term that you use narrator reader voice actor I, all of the above apply okay. yeah <laughs> I know most now um do have home studios and are doing the whole process themselves yeah which is just really different from what I experienced when I did it and I think it would be of course, it's nice to have the flexibility of like live wherever you want to live and work how you want to work. But I would also really miss, it's just a lot to handle. And I hope you guys get paid that extra that they're not paying to like engineers and directors. Yeah. <laughs> like it, they were. Depending on who you're reading for, sometimes we're lucky enough to just read it, um, do like the punch and roll version where there's like no mistakes and mm-hmm. you send it out. And then you just get it back with all of the corrections you need to do. Some of the books I had to do in the beginning were like, I had to read it. I had to edit it. I had to make sure it sounded right. It had to be mastered. And those were the books when I wasn't getting paid for very much. I wasn't getting compensated to the amount I am now Mm -hmm. with less work just because they were um, just independent publishers. Yeah, and you're just trying to get traction. Exactly. I was trying to get my foot in the door. And I did learn so much about what the process took. And I feel like a lot of people are interested in becoming audiobook narrators, but I don't think they conceive how how much work it takes. It's tedious. It really it's, is. It can be really tedious. And then it's taxing on your body. You get dehydrated. You're looking at a screen for like 17 hours, <laughs> perhaps not in a day, but over a period of time. And you're married to the text for so long. And um, it's exhausting. I I remember those trips to LA thinking before the trips, like, all right, I'll do that. Cause they were like, well, the way we work in the studio is, you know, the most productive time is really like 10 to three. And we just find that that's, unless you're really a professional, you can't do much more than that. And I was like, great. I'm going to like go out on the town. I'm going to visit with friends. (laughs) And I could not speak. I could not. I would just like lay in my hotel room and just like, I'm so tired. You're just concentrating so hard. Yeah. 
It's amazing. I love that you actually had that experience because it's like, it's kind of like the <laughs> fantasy to get flown out to the studio and record. But the reality is it's like, I'm exhausted. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's actually very cool. But I mean, what's lucky is now I know I can, if I have a book, I'll do the prep work and know how much time it'll take me. So I can break it up into like one hour sessions because after like, sometimes I'll do like a long session in case I have a lot of things to do, but like four hours in this chair in this room destroys my back. Yeah. Yeah. You <laughs> can't do that. And, and then um, how do you, so when you go back, when you're breaking it into sessions like that, mm-hmm. how do you, so you stop, let's say you take half hour, come back to your closet. Mm-hmm. What do you do to make sure like your voice now sounds like it did at the end of the previous so it's consistent. Yeah, I think what's really lucky is I innately am like good at cold reading. Mm. And especially if the text is already consistent, it just dictates the read. Um, if there's suddenly like a change in like tone in the book, it's like I become like a completely different person mm-hmm. in a way. So um, I'll usually try and make sure that like, I'm taking a break or stopping like when the chapter ends or like I'll look ahead and be like, oh, okay, right. this is the same. And then I'll come back into it. Um, but that makes sense. Yeah. I used to be able to think I could record two books at a time. And that <laughs> was really hard because it's actually like, you have to memorize all the voices. You have to memorize the tone. I have to keep the, the voice the same. And my voice is, it doesn't change too much because a lot of the books I've read have been young, young adult in middle grade. Like a single point of view, not exactly. too many characters. Exactly. Yeah. And they have been first, first person point of view. So it's like, I find that a lot easier because mm-hmm. third person is like, you are presenting. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's a little more detached and first person I can actually infuse myself into the book and it's more alive and I can be consistent that way. Yeah. You talked about um, some of those early books you did being like with independent publishers Mm -hmm. and authors and I know that's like a huge realm that a lot of people well like you said they think they want to get into it or they do want to get into it um what do you think of like that whole world of like ACX or find a way where it's just freelance folks doing their own stuff for indie authors like does that end up being worth, I'm not sure what I'm asking, except I equate it with um, the rise in self-publishing mm-hmm. for book books has been so massive over the last few years. And one thing I did during the first, well, through all of the pandemic is I was just curious. I wanted to learn everything I could learn about self-publishing. And, um, and I just decided I'm going to, self-publish a little companion book to go with my podcast just to see like how do these platforms work and how much work is it really when you're doing it on your own and what's the potential revenue and all of that so I did do this little just like a little book that goes with my podcast it's just sort of reading between the lines of the writing life just some various just advice stuff I've learned over the last 15 years um but as I got into learning about that, I started learning about all of the, you know, what the audio side of that looks like. So I don't know. What do you make of all that? And- yeah. I mean, I would love to pick your brain about all that because my husband is a writer 
And I'm like just in the a little cheerleader in the back trying to help him self-publish. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also serve as his editor. So there's like a whole other world to that. But the the ACX world, I think what I've experienced and a lot of my peers and colleagues discuss is how sometimes we'll get offers from publishers or their producers or whoever is on the other end. And the offers per finished hour are like $40 an hour. And I think it's because they don't understand how much work goes behind the audio side of things from the reading to the editing. Those are like self indie published people offering. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's it's absurd. (laughs) And so and I, I have been lucky because I have a, a friend of mine who's like a veteran audiobook narrator. He's done like over 200, 300 books. And I was, I was able to ask him before I was taken advantage of or mm-hmm. learn the hard way. And um, yeah, so when I tell people who express interest, when I tell them this is what I do and this is what pays my bills, they go, oh, I've always wanted to do that. Like, how do I start? And I go, if you do, if you go on ACX, don't accept anything that's under $75 per finished hour if the book is over four hours long because every 10,000 words is an hour of reading it's so it just doesn't add up yeah it's not it's definitely it's it's definitely not lucrative if you're just starting out and it'll just tire you out and I don't want people to burn out on something that's like such a magnificent Mm -hmm. experience and career um I don't know what it's like on the other end, but I know like the whole process of writing a book and trying to get it published and getting it out there always has, has always felt really daunting. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, how do you get eyes on this thing? Like, does any, yeah. is anyone going to read it? How do I get a publisher? How do I get an editor? You know, all that stuff that I actually would love to actually learn about from you, but there's a lot of hurdles to get traditionally published. And like the first one is just usually getting an agent because with the big publishers, if you don't have an agent, your manuscript's not really going to get read. There's exceptions to that. But um, so that hurdle itself can just take years, you know, to just get your work to the point where you can catch the attention of a literary agent. And then from there, things can happen quickly or it can be another you know, long wait before things happen. But then um, then you're in, in a system, uh, and not to turn this into an advertisement front book, but I actually write about this in this book, sort of comparing the traditional publishing versus self-publishing. Because then you're in a system where they have distribution, they have marketing, they have designers, you know, they sort of take care of everything. All you have to do is write. Whereas when you're self-publishing, you're doing all the pieces yourself or hiring people and paying out of pocket for them to do that. Uh, and then if you don't already have an established name, how are people going to find your book among the billion other books that are on Brilliant. Amazon or wherever? So, you know, but what I, I want, the reason I wanted to learn was um, I think every traditionally published author should learn how the self-publishing works and just like, Try it even with something small uh, because you never know if you have a book that's not selling well, like a traditionally published book that goes out of print or, you know, winds up at the discount bins or whatever, there's always a chance you could get the rights back for that um, and then publish it yourself 
do something different with it, take control of the process, especially if you feel like if you're a, a small author at a big publisher and you just feel like you fell through the cracks, maybe there's a chance for your book to have a second life as self-publishing. And also I think every traditionally published author has had the experience of just trying to do something that's like a little offbeat or a little outside your brand or just things that your publisher or agent or whoever are just like, oh, like we don't really want to see that from you. Um, then you have, you're empowered to go do it, do it under a pen name, do whatever you want. You know, it's just total freedom to be in charge of the whole thing, but you have to love learning how to do things. If you don't love learning how to do things, <laughs> um, self-publishing is going to be frustrating. And I'm sure it's the same with being a self-produced audio person. Like you have to be curious and you have to be like someone who researches things and likes being self-taught and is okay with trial and error and all of that. So some people, if they're not into that, I think they're just going to get frustrated. But um, I don't know. I think there's so many tools now for authors and readers and everyone to do things on their own. And that's, there's pros and cons to that, like with everything. Yeah. I think those are absolutely wise word, words to live by that you have to love the process and the learning and the perseverance it takes because the idea of what you think you're doing will involve all these other things you didn't think. Yeah. Were- like you have to love problem solving like it's all just kind of a puzzle that you're constantly trying to figure out yeah and if you don't like that process it's gonna be you're gonna be unhappy (laughs) I actually have a question so um when did you officially become an author and when did you decide that this was something you wanted to do Mm. I let's see I would say it was around 1995 or 96. I was in my mid-20s. That's when I started thinking seriously about writing for publication. And I did not study it in college. I never took a creative writing class. I just wanted to do it. (laughs) So I wrote a book from beginning to end. Um, That's the first thing. I think That is my number one. People always ask me like so many different types of questions for different types of advice. And they're getting way ahead of themselves usually um, because the very first thing you have to do is write to the end of something. Like if you can't push yourself through the boring and hard parts of getting to the end of something, then all this stuff about like, how do I get an agent? How do I do this? And it's irrelevant (laughs) because (laughs) if you can't get yourself to finish something you don't have a finished product (laughs) yeah so I think I kind of knew that innately I wouldn't have been able to articulate it then the way I just did but I knew like I had to finish something so and to me like I, I I respond well to external pressure so there was a contest that had a deadline that was a contest for a young adult novel and I was like great I'm going to finish something in time for this contest. Uh, I did not win. That book never got published. So, I mean, it's not like some big hero journey story, but it's just like, that was just like, I did it. I finished something. I was like, wow, I really can finish writing a whole novel. Um, 
So then I wrote another one and another one. So it was my first published book in 2007, which if you're keeping track, was like 10 years later. 10 years, yeah. <laughs> A um, over. was the fourth book that I wrote. So those first three books were just like learning how to do it, Practice. not just craft wise, but just like how to finish something when no one was, when no one cared. Like right. there's a lot of books in the world and a lot more now than there were when I started. And if you don't care, <laughs> Like no one else is going to care. So Absolutely. just like making myself be the one to care. So I could like push myself to do like this 10 year process that yeah. was much longer than I expected it to be. Um, so yeah, it was 2005. I sold that book. So it was right around 10 years from writing the first book to like finding the right agent and selling the book. And then it took a couple of years for it to actually come out. So um, I would say I started thinking of myself as a writer after I finished or while I was like writing that first book that I knew I was going to finish. It's pretty amazing. What were you doing in between? Like, I always was working. I mean, I've been working jobs. since I was 16. Yeah. So I actually, at the time, I think I had just finished I had just quit a job where I worked as a representative for a commercial, an account rep for a commercial printer. Cool. And then I was, I, I was an office manager for a small business. I think I was working like 30 hours a week, but I always, <laughs> all of through up until like that fourth book that I sold, I always had at least a three quarter time job, if not a full-time job, um, like a nine to five. So yeah. It was like evenings, weekends, sometimes at work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I mean, especially once I remember this one job where like I got my own office and I was like, ooh, I'm just going to write my book in here. <laughs> <laughs> Which book? Sorry, did you write? past anonymous employer. <laughs> that was probably that first book. Yeah. <laughs> I used to do that too when I was work. I was living in Toronto and I called it like inception work because I was working <laughs> within work. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> that's so fun. Yeah, I think that's how we kind of keep the dream alive. Like it follows you, right? You can't not do the thing. Yeah, if you can not do the thing, then don't do the thing because <laughs> it's not like you're not going to get rich um, and it's hard work. So you have to really want that. And there's a lot of reasons I still, that are my motivators for wanting to be a writer. It's not always like, it's all about the art. A lot of it is like, I, it turns out being self-employed is great for me. Like I have a lot of different, I have a chronic illness. I have just, you know, I get migraines. There's like a lot of issues. I don't like people. <laughs> like there's a lot of things that make I like being, I should say, I like being alone. I do like people, but I also really like being alone. So there's a lot of things that make being a writer and being self-employed great for me and having Absolutely. control over my schedule and all of that. So when I'm not feeling like the art part of it, those things are enough to keep me going. To just be like, I don't, you know, I need to be self-employed and I need work I can do independently and I need work I can do from wherever, um, like in the past four years, my husband's job was in California, but our place was in Utah and I was like going back and forth. So I was trying to work from both places. So I don't know, there's a, 
it's not the romanticized ideal of being a writer that I used to fantasize about when I first started. It's much more pragmatic. It's much more boring. It's much more annoying, but it's also (laughs) very rewarding. I feel really lucky to still be doing it like 15 years later because it's just a lot of ups and downs. Life, right? Yeah. Life. Well, and the market changes so much, you know, like I was telling the story at the beginning, one reason I got into middle grade because bottom line was like my last couple of YA books just were not selling. And all my team was like, uh, basically, I don't know if we're going to buy another young adult book from you right now. So, Hey, why don't you try a middle grade? So that was like, Oh, I have to a- adapt to the marketplace was part of it. But then within that, I found like a story I loved and wanted to tell. So it's always like this balance of practical capitalism, marketplace forces, all of that. And like flexibility. <laughs> exactly. And, and getting some kind of you can't hate what you're working on. So right. you, you still can't. have to find a way to do something that you want to do. Um, and if I didn't want to do it anymore and no one was buying what I do want to do, then I would just go back and get a job that would support that. So yeah, it's just being an adult. <laughs> Not over. It's just, you gotta yeah. go on to the next thing. Yeah. Um, when you moved from young adult to the middle grade, was the first book you did it wasn't a song called home. It was. Yeah. It was. So that was the first one. Wow. And then, and then I'm just working on the second draft of the second one now. Cool. Yeah. Well, and then, I- and then I'm also working on another young adult that I don't, I haven't sold it yet. I haven't shown it to anyone. So I still love writing that age. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. Well, let's go back to when we were talking about how the characters still feel alive to you especially and specifically a song called home um i recently took up surfing with my husband like more seriously so we'll drive down and pass uh we'll pass pacifica and i will actually look out the window at the houses because there's this beautiful like downhill bend and you can kind of see the whole area and i'm like yeah i wonder where lou moved to (laughs) well i will say this anyone who knows the bay area knows that this view is not possible absolutely not I looked at the cover when I when I had you're like that's fake and I was like where this is not anywhere unless she's in a hovercraft or a helicopter (laughs) yeah when I saw that we my editor and I were talking about I'm like it's um it's emotionally accurate (laughs) because she's like thinking about living in the city when she lives in the suburbs so yeah I think I grew up in San Francisco and when my mom got remarried, when I was 11, my stepdad lived in Pacifica and we lived in, um, in the Lindemar area. So that last neighborhood before you go toward Half Moon Bay. So we lived, um, there's like the Lindemar shopping center and we lived like a mile from that further toward the back of the valley. So uh, that's sort of where I pictured her in the Lindemar neighborhood in a very general, somewhere between Lindemar and Odstad. I don't know. Pretty awesome because those are real places, and I, I yeah, get so yeah, excited. <laughs> I'm like immersed in the reality of a book, and I'm like, I mean, they to have to go to the Taco Bell by the beach. That's yeah. <laughs> required any book you're going to set in Pacifica, right? <laughs> we actually considered moving there just because it was closer to the ocean, and we're such ocean. I people. love Pacifica. That's so nice. where my husband's job was oh, for a little nice. bit during the pandemic, and um, like you, we lived with 
my in-laws. I mean, you didn't live with my in-laws, but you lived with your in-laws. <laughs> that's how we know each other, Sarah. We're <laughs> staying with your parents. And it's, you know, it's that's a challenge as an adult, but it was, they were really great to have us there. And then, and then we were living in the school campus for a while, but it just made me, it was really weird being there. Cause I think anyone who's gone back to the town they grew up in, if it's a small town, it's one thing, like if you grew up in San Francisco and you go back, it's not the same the emotional. Yeah. yeah. When you go back to like the small town you grew up in, it's just weird. My husband and I both, cause we both went to high school in Pacifica and we both expressed having this feeling of like, it feels like nothing in the last 30 years happened. And we're just like, we have not grown. We have not changed. We have not <laughs> flown the nest. Like it's just weird. If you like every person you see in the grocery store line, you're like, is that Michelle from high school? From high school. You know, <laughs> it's just, it's very strange. I know it's so, like a time warp. Yeah. Yeah. But it is a great little town and you know, I have no complaints about Pacifica. Yeah. Other than all the uh, for people who don't know, there's a big like classic car culture in that area. And like every weekend people get out their dual muffler. Yeah. It's like Santa Barbara or Ventura. It's just, it's loud. just extremely loud. Yeah. The cruising, the cruising gets loud. Well, that's good to know because I, we specifically moved to Napa because it was so quiet and well, any noise is like, I hear it. I'm so like finely tuned to Well, and professionally, you can't work. You can't run your book narrating business in a noisy neighborhood. I mean, even if you have a good little home studio, you don't want to have like classic you want to live by the fire station let's (laughs) just say right (laughs) like I've actually taken to recording like from 10 p.m to like three in the morning just oh wow the world is asleep yeah yeah and it's it'll like screw up with my schedule because some I actually like it's hard I like being awake at night but I also like the sun you also like not sleeping all day (laughs) exactly but I'm like I gotta get this book done (laughs) getting interrupted just that will like that is the most disruptive thing to my narration is like oh pause for sound yeah pause for the truck that's making circles well it's like I thought Napa was quiet (laughs) (laughs) yeah um oh man that's so funny I I look forward to going back to Pacific and going back to the Lindemar shopping center and be like Sarah that was my (laughs) when I was in high school I worked at the round table pizza there Oh, I've seen that. I know. I can't I believe it's still there. Right? You know, round table pizza was still a thing. Yeah. I feel the same way. I think it's like a, a thing when you go back to where you grew up and it is a small area and it's kind of like you feel like you've grown up so much or you've like, I don't know, surpassed so many obstacles and, you know, going through therapy, you're like a different person. And then you go back home and you're like, everything is the same. Especially if you're living with your parents. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was lucky during the pandemic when we we moved up here to stay to escape LA and stay with my my husband's parents. It was, it was kind of refreshing for me because they weren't my parents. Right. Yeah. It was it was very cool to be able to record so many books in their walk in closets and be like, oh, like, I don't think anyone knows I'm in my mother and father-in-law's closet between I'm just in the closet making a living exactly (laughs) speaking of making a living 
Do you do other, in addition to narration work, like you mentioned something before we started recording about uh, like voiceover workshops. Is that something you're running or something you're taking? Like, I'm curious, most freelance people I know are like cobbling together an income with various pieces. I know I am. I'm curious, like what else you do to sustain your self? my goodness, what do I not do? Um, <laughs> well, in the voiceover world, um, this isn't actually to sustain myself, but I to sustain my craft. I, I take lots of voiceover seminars and lots mm. of voiceover coaching mm-hmm. classes. And then in addition to that, I um, hold voiceover workouts with my peers or anyone mm-hmm. who's interested in playing in between our auditions or in between um, jobs. And that I find is the most it's the most nourishing because we just come in and we play and we talk about um, auditions and sides or copy or I'll take things that I've learned in between and just like absorb all of it to just like spew out to my workout group. Mm-hmm. Um, I, in terms of like income, I do like luxury resale. Um, oh, nice. I'm learning how to be a helicopter pilot. Oh my gosh. I know. <laughs> So that's actually probably like the thing I'm most excited about. Um, yeah. And I, I just do like random entrepreneurial things on the side. I do like graphic design and um, I don't, I feel like I'm blanking. Like what are the No, random entrepreneurial things sounds about right. Right. I think that's, that's like the scope of all the things. The hustle. Like, yeah. Yeah. The hustle. And I think there's like a minor bit of like undiagnosed ADHD where like sure. anything I've I have like a minor interest in becomes like this excited obsession for me. Like, how do I get good at this? And how do I make money off it? I have, Um, you know. This is exactly me, what you're describing. (laughs) And it's not, it's not good. Like, I think that I've often wondered, like, should I get help for this? (laughs) Because it's that obsessive, like you get that hyper fixation on something. And then because you are a freelancer, um, there is like that next thing of like, how do I turn this into like a little business or something? I mean, I, the other day had an idea for a business, not the other day, a couple weeks ago. And just in the like 24 hours, I was fixated on it as like such a great idea. Like I registered a domain. I, you know, got an email address, like all this stuff. And I just had to like, I was like, Sarah, let's just slow down down for a minute. (laughs) you got enough to do right now. Like, (laughs) and I've done that many times over, like in the past five years of just like, whenever I get the little GoDaddy thing about my domain expiring, I'm like, (laughs) Like, oh yeah, yeah, that, I mean, because it's so cheap. It's like 20 bucks. And you're like, this is going to be my business. Yep. Uh, So yeah. So now I'm just trying to sell all my domains from my things I didn't follow through on. (laughs) You can actually make so much money off that. You can probably, probably not the ones I came up with, but (laughs) one could. (laughs) Someone took, like I had Ferdell.com as an, as a, that would have been a good one. Yeah. And then like, I let it expire because like, what what was I doing with my life when I was like, I don't know, like 18 or something. (laughs) And when everyone was like, oh, buy a.com. And you're like, okay, like my name is unique. And now it's like owned by somebody and it's like a completely fake like retail website. And I'm like, how do I get you back? Oh, I know. <laughs> so that whoever's out there one. who has my, my name.com. <laughs> it's so weird when you see someone else with your name, it just feels <laughs> like a assault. Yeah. I mean, as a, going on like 
uh, road trips with my parents and going to the gas station. And my parents made my name up. It's my dad's name and my mom's name put together, which I Are feel they like Ferdinand and Adele? <gasps> close. Ferdinand and Delia. <laughs> oh, oh, it was close. <laughs> yeah. Some people <laughs> guess like Fernando or like, you know, but yeah, for, for Ferdinand and Delia. And we'd go to the gas station. And I'd look through the magnets and be like. Oh, yeah. You're never going to find a Ferdinand right? magnet. As a child, I didn't <laughs> understand. I was like, there's lots of Michaels. and. I mean, I couldn't even find a Sarah with no age. You're not going to find a Ferdinand. Upsetting, right? It like really screws with your identity when like, like that like is you not my name. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's go back to the book because we're touching on identity. Um, I not that I want to ruin this for any of the readers who have not actually gone this far in the book, but Lou's Louisa's process of becoming Lou, and then you know, yeah, her her identity and her the way she looked. Did you experience that growing up or was that like something you thought of for the character? I think when you're that age, but you know, I think it starts around that age that Lou is and continues probably into your twenties or beyond. You are really looking for like what external thing like best expresses who I feel like inside. Um, So kind of in all my books, I realized I was talking to my, my editor yesterday about the draft I just turned in. And he's like, you've got like two different makeover scenes in this book. And maybe <laughs> just one. I was like, yeah, I, everything. I think every single one of my books has the moment where it's like, they get a haircut or <laughs> put on a different kind of outfit or, you know, like with Lou, it's like changing the spelling of her name. Um, I was in high school in the eighties. And when I was a freshman, I feel like every girl I knew changed the spelling of her name to something that they thought was cooler. So like, <laughs> I don't know, like Susie, if it was just like S-U-Z-I-E, they wanted to spell it like Susie of Susie and the Banshees, which is like oh, yeah. S-I-O-U-X-E oh, yeah. or something like that. Yeah, so every girl was like trying to do, <laughs> trying to do that. Um, so I think it's just something... I don't, I never plan it out when I'm writing and it always just, there's this moment where it's like, oh yeah, this is the moment. Like they're going to get a haircut or, um, you know, try on clothes that just really make them feel different or something. And yeah, I, I still feel that way. I mean, I'm 51 and I still always feel like, what if I got rid of every single piece of clothing I have and just started over? It was just a whole different approach. You know, um, I could be perceived as a completely different person uh yes. and and like uh, I know a lot of women especially feel this way about their hair of just right. like if your hair bangs <laughs> isn't right or something you just feel like I don't feel like me I feel like people are not perceiving me <laughs> because my hair is like one inch longer than I want it or something um <laughs> it's just so I mean part of it is like misogynistic conditioning <laughs> oh yeah to like I have to a present in this certain way but but there is just that even for men, I know just how clothing, that external expression of wanting to be perceived as close to how you feel like you are inside as you can. Um, Absolutely. And I think a lot of kids, this next generation of kids is doing that so much more with playing with like gender identity and pronouns and yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> just like being non-binary and like not being like, oh, well, skirts are only for this one category of person but being like maybe everyone can wear skirts so it's just fun to see kids have so much freedom now that they 
in the 80s especially we were very but I must stick to my gender expression um so yeah and I know like starting a new school is also a natural opportunity for that so I think when Lou realizes she is going to have to change schools it's just like you really think about how when I walk in there the first day how do I want this is my opportunity to either like be a new person or change my name or have the perception of myself completely reimagined so I think that's just all that's going on in that moment for her yeah I I wish I had the bravery to I mean that even applies to me like now in my 30s I'm like yeah I should, like I, I, I literally thought that the other day I was like I should get rid of all my clothes but like, who do I want to be? <laughs> like, I'm also an, an on-camera actor and I've had the same hair forever just because I'm like, I want to be consistent. I don't want to like upset You want to be versatile, agent. yeah. Yeah, and I was like, I think, and people would message me and be like, hey, I saw you on the Lowe's commercial, congratulations. And I was like, I'm either, I, I'm missing a check or someone <laughs> looks like me. I was like, it's time to chop off all my hair just so I can be a, a different version of me that right, doesn't right. look like another version of me that's out there in a different dimension mm-hmm. that's booking jobs. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's so funny. It's like bangs, no bangs, short hair, long hair. I, I convinced my husband to grow out his hair because during the pandemic, I was cutting our two dogs. I was grooming our dogs and mm-hmm. cutting my hair and cutting his hair. And I had had enough. So I was like, why don't you grow your hair out for cancer? Just donate to charity, provide service. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so his hair is like so long. And when I was, I presented to him, I was like, I'm going to cut my hair like really short. And he's like, you, you're telling me you were going to have the same haircut. And I was like, never mind. <laughs> no, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Twinning with your husband is yeah. awkward. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> From the back will look the same. Until mm-hmm. Turn around. So did he, is it cut off now? No, he's still growing. He's it. still got it. Yeah. It's like, it's probably like, it's really wavy. So if he pulls it down, it's probably like up to here for him, like collarbone length. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's really big. And he's just like, <laughs> please help me. And I'm like, no, give, give it to a child in need. He's such, such luxurious, beautiful hair. Truly but share, share the joy, share the joy. Um, all right. I want to ask you, what are your favorite must-haves to get you in the mood to write? Do you have any, or you just Ooh. go for it? I like to be, I prefer to be at my desk. Um, I have, we have a two-bedroom place. And when we first moved here, this was like the office. Now it's my office <laughs> because he's been in California for the last few years. Now he's back. And like before he moved back, I warned him. I was like, I'm thinking of still just keeping the office as my office. Um, (laughs) I just really love having a room of my own and a door that closes. So I like being in my own space. Um, I like to be like showered and dressed for the day. I don't like to just be feeling grimy in my PJs or whatever. I like to kind of start, have like an official start to my work day. Um, I like to have maybe gotten errands out of the way. I used to, because I heard so many writers say over the years, like you have to get your writing done first thing before everything else can take it over. 
So I've learned from myself that I actually like to have all my little stuff done so that I'm not thinking about it when I work. So sometimes that might mean I don't really start writing till like three in the afternoon. Um, and that's fine. Cause then I know like everything's done other times. If I'm experiencing a lot of issues with procrastination and resistance, then I do try and do it first thing before I can mess up my day too. <laughs> Cause I can always rationalize not working. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I just like to have my desk water. Um, often I'll have music, um, sometimes not, but I do like to have music. Otherwise I get, I get earworms, you know, like I just will have a stupid song, song yeah. stuck in my head and let's say I have something else playing. I think that might be an ADHD thing too. Um, <laughs> yeah. And sometimes way. I like to work in a coffee shop. If I'm really trying to get a change of scenery, a different energy, if I'm feeling distracted um, or I'm like not enjoying cohabitation, <laughs> I'll you know want to go to a coffee shop or a library or something to get into a different zone. But I'm pretty much like a homebody. I just like to work at my desk at home I really with my like, water. <laughs> I really like um, Salt Lake City. I visited twice. One of my really good friends lives there. Oh, really? Yeah. So I came and I visited in 2019 for the first time no the beginning of 2020 and stayed with her in Salt Lake and then we went again last year um she was it's got a lot going for it yeah it's I'm constant I constantly think about leaving but <laughs> I've also been here 22 years now so yeah I don't know I it's hard for me to stay in one place I yeah I mean it's kind of like the clothes and hair thing we're talking about it's just like <laughs> would I be a better different more interesting person if I lived somewhere else so the style in Utah is very interesting I think in like Salt Lake it's, do you please don't tell me you have a very <laughs> large hat <laughs> <laughs> no I'm okay I'm, I'm not in the boho aesthetic <laughs> but just making sure <laughs> there is a bit of an influencer culture. Let's just say, yes. Uh, Utah is like the cradle of multi-level marketing companies. A lot of, um, because, because the LDS Mormon culture does value being a stay at home mom in a really specific way that goes with their doctrine. Um, a lot of women are working from home. And so the multi-level marketing type companies and other side hustles and just influencing all that stuff is a way that a stay-at-home mom can establish something for herself without having to like go get a day job. So it makes sense that, that all happens, but then you do see, I don't know, do you ever watch any of the Real Housewives of Salt Lake? I haven't, but I've been told I should. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. If you're a fan of Real Housewives in general, it's it's interesting. Um, I don't know. I'm more in the granola neighborhood. It's just like, you know, your keen sandals and your Tevas and your hiking shorts. Oh yeah. And, the REI. Know, the REI. Yeah, I'm in I'm the REI <laughs> zone. 
<laughs> we actually, we were behind a, a pickup truck yesterday in traffic and they had all the REI stickers. I was like, oh, I like those. And I was like, those are from REI. <laughs> it's a whole vibe. Yeah. It's one of my favorites. I could be outside <laughs> all the time, camping, outdoors, trees, hiking yeah. shoes. Yes. If I could only have Wi-Fi while also outside and also not have glare on my laptop at the same time, I'd be like the dream. And no like, noise. <laughs> exactly. My ideal, like if I had the ideal studio, it would have like a window to the outdoors and like mm. I just see trees or have like a, a skylight or something. Because sometimes yeah. I, I'll come out of the booth and be like, oh, it's really dark. <laughs> yeah, you don't have any natural light in there. That's not in here. No. <laughs> So do you, you mentioned, or you alluded to writing, are you a writer as well? I would say I was a writer first. Oh, that okay. was like my first. Tell one. us more. Of course. Um, <laughs> I think it just started with like, you know, assignments in class, like poetry and creative writing. And I loved books. I loved writing. I, I sort of experienced the world almost like third person <laughs> just because mm -hmm. I love the concept of having someone narrate in like an omnipresence kind of way. <laughs> it was kind of how I functioned in life as a child. And um, that sort of led to becoming a singer-songwriter and playing the guitar and writing that way. So I, I haven't written a book. I've written lots of screenplays and scripts. Um, and when I met my husband, we started writing animated series, uh, television shows for children. So we're sort of in the mix of that. And then I edit a lot of the work that he's done. So he does, he, he does screenplays and he also does, I've, <laughs> we were having this issue where it was hard finding work because of, you know, being a writer or whatever in, in the mm -hmm. film world. And we were having this big discussion on how a lot of the things being produced were intellectual property. Yeah. So I was like, why don't you write a book and that'll be intellectual, like take one of your scripts, turn it into a novella. And now it's intellectual property and maybe someone will turn it into a movie. <laughs> so that was like sort of the end goal. And so that's what we were kind of working on. Um, but I mean, I'm so busy on this end. So I'm just like, here, like figure out how to self-publish and like, mm -hmm. I'll illustrate your cover for you and do all the marketing stuff that if you need help, but like, you really got to figure this out on your own. And I feel like it's probably a lot more complicated and a lot more immersed than you realize. So we're sort of back and forth on that. But in terms of writing, those are, that's like sort of the scope of what I do. Plus, you know, the occasional journaling and the one day hopes of turning all the random cinematic things I've experienced in my life into a story. I told it to one of my friends and he was like, this should be a one hour special on HBO. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. I used to do stand up as well. So that was part of my writing. So it's kind of dabbling in everything. I yeah. I would say a you're a writer. Yeah. That's a lot of, <laughs> right. that's a lot of writing. <laughs> it is a lot of writing. And yeah. No, and I mean, okay. even there being a reader is you're reinterpreting the story. Yeah. Um, and that's engaging with it. I mean, I'm always telling um, my students and also like kids who, when I've gone and done school visits and stuff, and they're asking like, well, how do you picture this character? And what does this look like? Um, that whole idea that when the writer writes a book, um, that's only like half of <laughs> the, the process. And then when the reader reads it, they're 
recreating the story in their mind. And so the reader is an important part of a, a book's experience. So like if I'm trying to translate a story from my imagination into words so that I can deliver it into your brain. So then you receive the words and then you reinterpret it into images. Yeah. Uh, not everyone reads exactly like that where they're seeing the images, but I think a lot of people do, especially if we live in such a cinematic culture. So when I say like, I don't know what this character looks like to you, I know what they look like to me, but in your head, they could be totally different, you know? Yeah, that's one really important thing. I always try and encourage the people in my voiceover workouts when you practice reads is like, especially when it's commercial reads and you're talking about like a burger, like you have to imagine everything that you're saying, even if it's like, if, if even if it's just allowing the words to do the job, if you're visualizing it, it changes the experience of the read for the listener entirely. Yeah. And if you're imagining it, you may have a different visualization in your mind, but you're still going to get that subtlety of like vision. Mm -hmm. you know? It's just so cool how communication works that way and how our, our brain waves just like connect to that. Well, I remember like when I was doing my audiobooks and the director I was working with, she said, like, I was asking her, like, what about when I'm reading different characters? You know, what's she said, you know different readers do it different ways, but rather than thinking about like doing a voice, like you're thinking about inhabiting that character. Their intention. And then, yeah. And then like, it's going to come out in the voice and you can do some intentional things with that, but, but versus like, okay, now this character is going to sound like this, you know, it's yes. more like kind of trying to sink into who that person is in the context of the scene Absolutely. And if you're reading a first person narration, it's also going to be theoretically, it's the narrator's version of that person's voice, you know, so yeah. it's not a voice. It's not. Yeah. A like lot a totally of totally different thing. A lot of being an audiobook narrator incorporates how being an actor. I don't think I would ever be able to do any of the text justice if I couldn't perform it. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's one thing a lot of people who are interested in becoming an audiobook narrator is to take acting classes. Is yeah. To, to really understand what it's like to play off someone. Because when you're in front of a book, you're not playing off anyone. You really have to have the imagination to experience something that's not even happening in front of you authentically, I guess. So it's actually cool that I'm really glad that the director mentioned that to you because it it really isn't just about the voice. It's about right. the actual performance of the character itself. I'm mm -hmm. kind of like a purist when it comes to this stuff. I'm purist with audio. I'm a purist with like performance and, and text. I'm like, it's like obsessive. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, because you experienced what it was like to record with a director in studio, like what were some things that like surprised you? What did you learn? Um, what was like your favorite thing about it? I loved, because I am the, was the author of those books, I loved that I knew the audiobook was not gonna have any misread lines. You know, like when you, when you write something, you just hear it in your head a certain way. So I knew it was gonna be exactly how I heard it in my head when I wrote it. That was my favorite thing about reading my own books. Um, I also, one of the hard things was 
at least with the way Random House did it, I don't know what your experience has been, but they're very, because they sometimes use the audiobooks to help teach reading where like a kid will have a book open the text and listening to the audio. They don't want any, it has to be word for word exact. Um, and as the writer, this is another thing where it's hard being the writer. I just constantly wanted to edit, you know, like, why did I, I should have, you know, it's the same, like when I'm giving readings, I'm always changing it a little bit while I read because I think it sounds better. And I don't know, you know, when I was doing those and it had to be just verbatim what I wrote, it was painful sometimes. I just be like, why did I, why did I write it like that? Or like end up writing these like tongue twisters where it's like, I should have read this out loud to myself because <laughs> too much. I cannot say these two words back to back. <laughs> it's funny. The plight of the narrator. <laughs> so yeah, much alliteration. I, I mean, I'm sure you come across those phrases where it's just like, if the author had thought for a minute about how this sounds aloud. <laughs> before I even start, like before I even press record, I like I have a, a page of tongue twisters and like I don't know, like breath control things. And I like mm -hmm. plow through them before I get in. Cause if I don't do it, I'll have like processing, like I'll have, I'll have a, a problem saying like the and of back to back for some reason. Yeah. 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 That's funny that it's actually, <laughs> it's really funny that you to experience both being the author and the narrator and then being like, ah, oh. <laughs> yeah. Like I could be mad at myself. <laughs> I could be mad at that author, Sarah Zar, as the narrator, Sarah Zar. <laughs> Like, oh, Sarah's R. Dang, that's Sarah's R. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. One of the questions I had written down was, I feel like this is such a, like a, a standard question people might ask, but younger you, younger Sarah's R, with her hopes and dreams, <laughs> do you remember what you aspired to be when you were younger? Oh, Ferdell, that is a complicated question. <laughs> so I grew up in the 70s um, and my mom became a born again Christian. And we went to a church that was kind of part of the California 70s Jesus movement. And they were really big on end times theology. Wow. So actually, I did not perceive, I did not imagine a future for myself because I grew up with this idea that like the rapture was going to happen oh my any goodness. second. <laughs> so it was really hard. Well, well, it was a combination of that, plus the habit of kind of living in survival mode from my dad being an alcoholic and us being so financially insecure. Um, those two things combined, I just did not think about the future or I didn't have dreams. <laughs> It's really sad. Like, it sounds sad. It's fine. Like I've had lots of therapy right. I'm over it now, but it is interesting. Cause I didn't, I didn't think like no one in my life was being like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, I didn't think in those terms, it was partly surviving the day to day and also partly assuming like I was going to be raptured like next week. <laughs> so I just, you know, it was an escape for my mom. Um, we talk about it a lot now. Like she didn't mean to curtail um, <laughs> my ability to think about the future, but it was just like how she was dealing with things at the time. Um, 
so I didn't, so younger Sarah didn't really have a concept of like what I would be doing when I grew up, where I would like to live, you know, even like the fact that I met my husband and we've been married like 32 years, but I was 16 when we met and like, I wouldn't recommend that in general. It worked out for us, but you know, there's still a part of me that's like, what if I had actually been able to like <laughs> grow up and become an independent person and figure out who I was and what I wanted before I was like locked into all these, you know, things like at age 19 or whatever. So um, I just, I don't know. I was just kind of like going along with whatever happened. So I didn't really start like thinking about what I want to do until my mid twenties when I started thinking about being a writer, that was it. So I really didn't have like career dreams. I didn't have an alternate plan. I was just like, I'm just going to really try and do this. And it has to happen because it's the only thing that I know that I want to do. So that's why I stuck with it for 10 years <laughs> before getting published, because I was just like, this has to happen because I don't know what else I'm going to do. That's actually really inspirational because I don't know I think it is you come out the other end you know like to it's but not everyone does I mean I don't like to I'm always careful when I'm teaching to like or coaching people or whatever to I don't like to give easy platitudes to people just like just if you keep doing it and you stick to it or you really try like you could do it because easier said are, than done. Yeah, there's a lot of things that are outside of your control that yeah. might not allow that to happen. So I'm I'm a pragmatist in that way, but it did end up working out for me and being something I still feel lucky to do. Um but I still have that feeling like I have to make this work because I don't really have because the I don't really have any like job skills <laughs> other than writing and teaching writing and all of that. So I, I am like amazed with that answer. It was absolutely not what I expected. And I'm like, so fascinated. <laughs> I like, feel like I want to dive into that more and be like, cause to, to really go through that in a way, cause it, there's so much pressure. Like, I mean, I experienced a lot of pressure growing up being like, you have to achieve great things. Yeah. And not to say that I didn't, I did the opposite of that. Cause there was something within me always being like, I want to be, I'm kind of competitive. I'm like, I want to be great. I want to do things. I don't know what that's going to be. There's a lot of things I don't like. There's a lot of things I do like and dabbled with a lot of trauma in between mm -hmm. <laughs> and to come out the other end and know that, I mean, to persevere 10 years to do something that you believe in and want to do and then share it with other people. I think that's a really beautiful way of coping and providing yeah, I, I feel like I becoming a writer helped me become myself, my true self in a way that nothing, nothing else sort of that I was on the path of was going to do that. And it's important to me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I get to do this because it feels like who I am, even though there's like bad things about making it your identity <laughs> because then when like if your career's not going well your identity just takes a hit you know and I've been through that I mean I'm at the other end of that too because I had a when I first started out and my first book was this big splash it got made into a movie um I had a number of successful books after that and then I just kind of took a dip things change new writers come up you know the marketplace changes um 
And when that first started to happen, I was really like in a bad way. Cause I was just like, who am I, if I'm not like getting exactly. this amount of attention, you know, um, that I need for my poor little <laughs> codependent inner child. But, um, <laughs> but then I worked through that, you know, so now I actually enjoy my career a lot more because I just don't, I don't feel entitled to it. Um, entitlement is, it's a bad road. It's going to end you up at bitterness. <laughs> yeah. I think you just have to be grateful for the good things that happen. Even and if the they don't happen, things. you can't be like, God damn it. That was supposed to be mine. You know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's not sustainable. <laughs> right. Right. It's, those are totally understandable, normal human feelings that you can mm -hmm. have for a couple days, but you can't like live there. Right. Yeah. And I think that expresses the, the essence of your success, the perseverance and the, you know, waiting for the ebbs and flows yeah. to go through. Which, um, which one of your books became a movie? It was that first book, Story of a Girl. Okay. Um, and it took about, that was another thing that took about 10 years because <laughs> it was optioned in 2007. And then there was like the housing crash and the writer's strike and all mm -hmm. this stuff where it didn't end up really coming together until 2017. Uh, and then it was uh, produced by A&E. It ended up on Lifetime. Uh, it was directed by Kira Sedgwick, became her directorial debut. It was really fun. I got to go to the set. Like, it was a dream come true. This is one of those things that's not guaranteed to happen at all when you're a writer. So that's another thing I feel lucky to have experienced. It's really amazing. That's yeah. like super fun. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Being on set is super cool, especially for your book. <laughs> that's yeah. So cool. And they treat you. It's nice. You know, they're like, everyone, this is the author. <laughs> it's just, it's nice. You know, it was a nice little day of feeling special. Yeah. I love that. I didn't know that. That is so cool. And really fun to watch actors work. I mean, talk about tedium. People who think they want to be movie stars. <laughs> oh, so much work. So That so, is so tedious. It's so much waiting around. I mean, yes. And for, you know, something small budget without big names like this, it's not like you're just retiring to your trailer while your stand-in does the work. I mean, there are those young actors who are just like there for doing hours. all of it, you know? Um, yeah. I loved watching that and hearing them say my words. It was like, wow, that's weird. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yes. That's one of my <laughs> other favorite things that keeps me growing, going, being on set is like infuses me. I think it's the energy on set with the crew it's and so everything. collaborative. Yes. It was writing a book is so solitary and filmmaking is so collaborative. Um, it takes so many people to like, just make a scene happen. Yeah, like over 20 sometimes. And if it's small budget, it's at least two to five. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's another way. I guess I forgot that I, I make money. <laughs> Acting, yeah. Acting, yeah. It's, um, I think that's so cool that you experience being on set. I think it's it's so fulfilling to know that you're not just an author. You've experienced all these things throughout your life. And I think that's what makes your writing so dimensional because it's not just like what's happening it's like I, you can tell that I don't know I loved I loved narrating your book there was just something so thank you beautiful about everything that was written that it wasn't just like this is what's happening to a young girl it right literally 
reading your book, I is probably one of the main inspirations for creating this podcast is like, I want to know what was going on with Sarah's life. Cause there's <laughs> clearly more than like intuitively. I felt like I knew I was like, there's gotta be more. Like she seems fascinating. I need to understand. <laughs> I do think that. Cause I think a lot about that 10 years that it took me from when I first finished a book to when my first one came out. And I think the fact that my first book didn't come out till I was in my mid thirties and that I collected a lot of life experience before that has ultimately made my work so much better. Even though when I was 25, I would have loved it if it was just like, it just happened right <laughs> when I wanted it to happen. Of course. Right. But I think that would have been bad for my writing. I think the time that I waited and just lived my life has all gone and like worked jobs, like it's all gone into being able to create worlds that are real. That's like reality is my thing. Like if I had the imagination to write a fantasy novel, that'd be great, but I don't. <laughs> so I really work to make reality feel, to really make it feel like these are real people in the real world. And I think being someone in their early fifties now, <laughs> just the older I get, the more that enhances what I'm able to do with that and with the depth of my work um, to just have the life experience of being around for a long time. I remember reading a quote recently that I think it was directed to actors, but I think it applies to any creative field where there's like these landmarks of jobs that you try to attain, but it's, it's about what, what, what you do with life in between. Yeah. And I think that's another tidbit for anyone who wants to become an author or wants to become an audiobook narrator is one of the things that was really lucky for me was all of the random chapters of my life and all the random job experiences I've done have actually allowed the content of things that people have written to find me. Yeah. And when I read the books, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. I think I understand why they asked me to try out to be a narrator for this book. Because I've gone from like being a science teacher to in the music industry to like working in a cancer screening clinic and like being like all of these random things. And I remember doing all of them and feeling so lost, Mm -hmm. you know, like being like 17 to like 26 or something being like, what am I doing? It's a hard time of life. Yeah. You know, like I like uh, with other people's perspectives, it looks like I have no direction, but I felt like, I mean, I always knew I was like, I, if I ever have to play this character in my life, at least <laughs> I know what it's like, mm-hmm. you know, at least I'll know, I'll know what it's like to like, experience it firsthand. And I can share that with the world. So I think that, yeah, it's, well, you have to, like when you're self-employed and it's so much of your work is just you and the screen. If that becomes your whole life, you're living your whole life just through this like screen, you just, you don't have anything to bring to it. Like yeah. you, you have to live. Uh, I think that's something a lot of, I, I teach for, for an MFA program and you know, a lot of the students are in their early twenties. Like they've gone straight from undergrad to grad school and they wanna go right into publishing. Um, which I understand that desire, but also like you have to have some, get some life under your belt to bring dimension and depth to your work and to kind of develop that compassion and empathy for 
how strange and complicated humans are (laughs) to be able to write about them in a way that is real, you know? So yeah, I think that's one of, that's a big piece of advice is just like live your artistic dreams aren't happening right now. Just like live your life, do a bunch of different stuff. It's all going to come back and feed that work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That seed of creativity. I feel like it doesn't go away. It will always follow people. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, If you're called to do it, you will, you'll keep finding it. Yeah. Uh, How long have you been teaching for? Oh, off and on for like the last 10 years. Um, There are these low residency MFA programs where uh, you, so that students don't have to like move to where the school is or quit their jobs or their lives or anything to get their MFA. So for about nine days at the beginning of each semester, you're all on campus together doing workshops and seminars and planning your semester. And then the rest is submitted via email throughout. So it's kind of a hybrid distance and in person. So I do most of it just from home Um, and then the in-person residencies. That sounds really fun. It's a good, a lot of writers covet these gigs because, you know, it's another little paycheck to go along with everything else yeah teaching is really great I think that's I get a lot out of it yeah yeah how many students do you usually have at a time usually just like two or three that's another thing with these kind of programs you're the the job title is actually faculty mentor and so you're just kind of doing one-on-one mentoring with just a couple of students so there might be like say eight or nine students in the cohort of writing for young people and there's like four or five mentors and you each take a couple. And so you're working really in depth with them and their work over the semester. You basically guide them through the things that they're reading. That's cool. They, they submit a packet of work every month. That's like 25 pages of writing a few like annotations on the books they've been reading for the program. They have to do a little bit of critical writing in the second half um, and just kind of teaching them everything you possibly can about <laughs> writing and revising and literature and all that. So when you're not writing or teaching, are you also reading? And what are you reading? Oh yeah, right now, this is kind of funny that you asked this because it's summer, right? So summer reads. So I'm reading a book I got for free. If you're a member of Amazon Prime, every month they send you an email where it's like, you can pick one of these free books for your Kindle. So I picked one last month and it's like, it's so, the plot is so absurd and unbelievable. (laughs) And I'm just enjoying that. I'm not going to say what book it is because (laughs) I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but (laughs) it's just kind of funny. Uh, But I have right now, I'm what I'm looking forward to reading next back there on on my desk is um, Nina LaCour's new book called Yerba Buena. I'm looking forward to that. Um, And I'm revising my own book. Oh, I'm also reading a nonfiction book called Salty. It's like essays about, it's sort of taking the concept of if you could host a dinner party with like any 10 people from history, who would they be? So this author, Alyssa Wilkinson, 
picked like her 10 people and wrote a little essay on each of them. And it's also a little bit of a food memoir. And there's like, there's some recipes in there. I really like that. That sounds awesome. I think I might read that next. I'm enjoying that. Sarah, I think this is the end of our podcast. I think it is the end. Yeah. I think I'm ready for lunch. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of food, (laughs) I loved talking with you. I love getting to know you. I've learned so much. I enjoyed it too. And uh, I feel a little bit like you're a kindred spirit. So you'll have to stay in touch and I'll keep watching your work from afar. And (laughs) I know you've narrated some great books and I know you'll keep doing it. I'm looking forward to seeing where this podcast goes and being able to recommend it to folks. Yeah, I know. I'm excited too. Well, thank you so much. And thank you. Maybe I'll have you back again because I just, I could probably talk to you forever. I just We could talk about my childhood, <laughs> my religious trauma. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be like episode 12, Diving Deep <laughs> with Sarah Zar. <laughs> we'll just do a whole season on me. Yes. That's what people really want. <laughs> I think so, actually. Like after this, I was like, okay, I'm going to have her back for sure because we, we just like crested the surface and we want to go in a little further. Well, enjoy lunch. You Enjoy too. the rest of your summer. Yeah. Uh, stay stay cool. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's hot in here. Go surf those Pacifica waves. Yeah. I'll go in there and be like, Sarah, <laughs> this one's for you. <laughs> Do it. Do it. Okay. Take care and thank you for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you.